Good morning, Gold Avenue Church family and friends. Because of COVID, there hasn't been much of an opportunity to share what was learned in Israel this March, but this morning's text reminds me of one of our many surprises. As we sat in the ruins of a tabernacle close to the Sea of Galilee, our guide led us through a reenactment of Jewish worship in the synagogue. And when it came time for the reading of God's word, the person whose turn it was to read and who had prepared all week would go over to the closet where the community's scrolls were kept. And as they took out the scroll for that week's reading, the whole community would then stand and begin to praise the Lord loudly and with great joy for giving them his word. The reader would then walk the scroll around the room And each person would have the opportunity to touch it, to bless it, even to kiss it, while they all raised their voices in worship. And then came the reading, usually 20 to 25 minutes of scripture, followed by the reader, a different community member each week, speaking for five to seven minutes on what was read. We were shocked. Totally the opposite of our normal pattern. They read scripture for 20 to 25 minutes and preached or meditated on it for 5 to 7. Who had it backwards, we thought? Well, without answering that, this morning we're going to practice something closer to that pattern, maybe a little bit of uh, a balance of both, as we're going to read Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 together. And we will trust the power of the Spirit to speak through God's Word as we listen And then we hear a shorter message. So let's pray and then we'll turn to Nehemiah 8. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We love it. And we treasure it. And we treasure the many treasures, Father, that you give to us through your word. The ways that you guide, instruct, refine, encourage, inspire, hope. And the ways that you speak to us as your children. And we're just so, so grateful that we have access to your word, that we can own whole copies of your word, and that you do speak to us through it. And so we pray, speak right now by the power of your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you'd say to us today, Lord. Amen. From Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, 
Malkija and Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! They bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. On the twenty-fourth day of the same month, month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God, 
and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashab, Neah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gergesites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the sufferings of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a gracious and forgiving God, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. 
Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with the kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who'd warned them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. In your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, The person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that's come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. In all that's happened to us, You have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned to keep them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see... We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, the Levites and our priests, are affixing their seals to it. Then he lists all those who sealed it. And it says, The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully 
all the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord our God. And then they name a bunch of those specific decrees that they're recommitting themselves to abide by. And they end by saying, the end of chapter chapter 10, we will not neglect the house of our God. God's holy and awesome word. We thank you, Lord. Well, friends, one of the things that I don't believe has been mentioned up to this point in our series on Ezra and Nehemiah is that Nehemiah's name means the Lord is my comfort or comforter. The same name that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit. And as we recall the kind of leadership that Nehemiah has given up to this point, we can see clearly that he is a type or a prophetic picture of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah is sent by God like the Spirit. He comes with guidance, with truth, with deep encouragement, and with discernment that helps to parry the enemy's attacks. Nehemiah has come from afar and he has proclaimed the hope of rebuilding. He said in chapter 2, our God will give us success. Nehemiah has inspected the broken down walls and gates. He's rallied the people and assigned them each to sections. Nehemiah stood firm against unbelief, scorn, accusation, and repeated attack, calling on God and mobilizing the people to guard, to fight, and to work tirelessly. Nehemiah resisted and overturned the practice of charging excessive interest that had threatened to undo God's people from within, restoring justice and generous care for those with needs. And Nehemiah has kept his eyes and focus steady on the work of restoring the walls and gates, refusing to be distracted or waylaid by the endless schemes of the enemy through Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, or the false prophet Shemaiah. And so Nehemiah and the people with him have now done in 52 days what the people without Nehemiah's leadership have been unable to do for 70 years. Let me say that again. Nehemiah and the people with him have done in 52 days what the people without Nehemiah's leadership have been unable to do for 70 years. The flesh profits nothing, says Jesus, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God is the rebuilder, not only of the walls and of the gates, but of broken human hearts and lives. The Spirit of God can accomplish in short order what humanity, apart from God, cannot do over many generations. So this rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, we need to see that it's a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. And yet, as our text begins this morning, I want to say to you that the people of Israel are now in the most dangerous spot yet. Because now they've got rebuilt walls and rebuilt gates and a newly secured city. But the people inside the city are the exact same people 
who hadn't rebuilt it for 70 years. So the city's been rebuilt, but the people haven't yet. And these people, as we stand at the end of chapter 7 and the walls built in the beginning of chapter 8, these people stand in the most precarious of spots because it would be so easy for them to finish the rebuilding, take off their swords, prepare a feast inside the safety of these walls, and then begin to revel in just how amazing it is that they got these walls and these gates built in 52 days. I mean, I can just hear them. This is so incredible. Can you imagine? Can you see what we just did? And if they don't realize just how utterly dependent they are upon God, that this couldn't and this wouldn't and this didn't happen apart from His sovereign grace and by His Spirit's power, they will be far, far worse off than before they rebuilt. That is, if they don't allow the Spirit to develop true humility and repentance within them, they will begin to live inside these walls with a false sense of security. This danger is real for them, and it is real for every single Christian. We cannot rebuild our lives in our own strength, no matter how hard we try. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot rid ourselves of sin in our own strength. And no amount of trying harder makes us better people who are pleasing to God. Only Jesus Christ can and does rescue from sin and the sure death it brings. And Jesus does not rescue us as we try harder for a long period of time. Jesus rescues us as we place all our faith in Him. Through faith in Jesus' atoning death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit works a miracle in our hearts It's a supernatural miracle. He joins himself to us. He gives us a new heart and he puts a song of praise on our lips. And so the gates of salvation and the walls of praise, they go up supernaturally fast as God the Holy Spirit rebuilds what we cannot do in our own strength. Beautiful. And yet fraught with danger for us too. Because if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to ongoingly penetrate our hearts with the depth of our helplessness and complete inability to rebuild our lives and with the absolute grace of God to gift us with rebuilt and eternal lives through Jesus. If we don't develop a spirit of humility and repentance, we so easily slip into viewing our rebuilt by the Holy Spirit self and think, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not so bad. And we subtly and slowly become proud and then not so easily teachable and then more and more closed to correct correction. And we develop a false and even deadly sense of security. We can become believers who have rebuilt walls, salvation, 
and yet who never fully welcome and allow the Holy Spirit to renew us from the inside out. So you know we've said before that every believer is like Israel right after they've been delivered out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. Israel has left Egypt, but Egypt's not out of Israel. And Israel's toxic mistake, one which cost them 40 years of wandering, was to not allow God to purge them fully of the influence of Egypt, of the world. The purging, the cleansing, the renewing, the refining only comes as God's people humble themselves before him and before the human leadership his spirit works through, in that case Moses. This is a danger that every believer faces, just like Israel faced. And so we need to ask, how do we know if we might be living with a false sense of security? Well, we might just start by asking ourselves, do I love correction? Or do I bristle when someone attempts to point out something in me that is unpleasing to God? Do I openly welcome God's discipline and even hunger for it whatever way God chooses? Or do I try to control the sources of my refining? Do I pick and choose where and who it comes from? Do I actively seek the insight of trusted Christian leaders into my character? What do you see? What do you experience in me? Or does the thought of exposing myself to critique make me cringe? Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I looked it up. The word literally translates as stupid. Proverbs 15.32 says, Whoever ignores discipline despises himself or herself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. These are strong words, friends, and the Proverbs are full of them, but they are God's loving truth. If we don't love discipline or correction, we're stupid, we're foolish, and we are, we're actually at war with ourselves. We're working against ourselves and against the Lord. No one can truly hope to grow up to maturity in Christ without learning to love and hunger for God's correction. So we need to hear that a posture of repentance and humility is to not only mark our coming to faith in Christ, but our entire walk with the Lord. There is no genuine walk with the Lord without it. Many, many times throughout Israel's history, as they recall in the prayer in chapter 9, they call upon the Lord, and in His mercy, He delivers them supernaturally. And that supernatural encounter of His sovereign grace, saving and delivering, is supposed to transform them. They're supposed to respond to it with this awareness of His incredible, amazing grace, and to totally and completely humble themselves before Him. But... Many times, as they recounted, Israel fails to respond to God's deliverance with this 
a spirit of ongoing repentance and humility. And each time, like the exile, the end result is disastrous. Friends, the good news today is that today is not one of those days. Today, the people are not patting their their own backs or puffing their chests or touting their own courage in the face of their enemies. Today, they've got the spiritual eyesight to recognize God is moving in our midst. God has delivered us supernaturally. God has done what we couldn't do. God has united us. He's protected us. He's helped us rebuild. He is awesome. And they are responding to the supernatural saving grace of God by turning to the word of God with profound and deep hunger. The way that Nehemiah 8 pictures it, all of society is at standstill as they eagerly listen. While Ezra reads and the Levites explain for hour after hour after hour. Today, they are weeping, they're broken, they're mourning as they allow themselves to realize just how far they are from God's original design. And today, Nehemiah, again, a picture of the Holy Spirit, responds to their tender and true repentance with comfort. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Today, they are rediscovering their identity and recommitting themselves to celebrate God's feasts in God's way. And as they live into that identity, living in tabernacles for a week to remind themselves of their God-delivered beginnings, they are listening raptly to the Word of God. The text says every day for a whole week they listen. And the Spirit is working in their hearts, producing deep and genuine repentance. And so they gather, when the feast is done, they they gather all together again at the end of this feast to agree with God about what he says. And the leaders stand up and they address God for everyone. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And they remember aloud, together, God's faithful mercy. And they confess together, their stubborn, self-led sinfulness, and they agree together with God's judgment on them through the exile, and they bind themselves to the Lord and to His covenant afresh. They promise to respond to His grace with wholehearted obedience to His ways, and the joy of the Lord truly does become their strength. Because, because they empty themselves of every shred of pride and self-reliance. Joy comes back and joy comes in and joy fills them since like no other time since the time of Joshua entering the land, which is right after Moses. All because they empty themselves before the Lord. 
Friends, a life of deep joy is our inheritance in Jesus Christ. It's always available to us. I know the secret to contentment, says Paul, who also commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. Isaiah prophesies, With joy you'll draw water from the well of salvation, and that well never runs dry. Jesus' joy is ours. It's available to us always, but sometimes the well cap gets blocked, or it feels like the river stops flowing, into our hearts at least. And in those times, we ought to ask ourselves and the Lord, Have I strayed, Lord? How might I be deviating from your will? Am I, un- am I complaining? Am I mistrusting? Have I spoken in ways that are hurtful? Do I have an ungodly attitude? Am I acting in any way contrary to your word? In my relationships, in my heart, in my actions, have I not repented of something you're showing me? Am I living without any real hunger for your word and your ways? Purify me, Lord. Cleanse and refine me, Lord. Get the world out of me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to live and to grow up into my identity as your very own child. This posture of humility and this spirit of repentance, this emptying ourselves before the Lord as Israel did, provides the space for the joy of the Lord to flow into us. Andrew Murray reminds us, Water always flows to the lowest place in the valley. Humble yourself before the Lord, and the water will come. Friends, I read this week that in 2019, 75% of adults polled in the U.S. identified as Christians. 62% of those who identified as Christians said they also went to church I crunched the numbers and that's 40, 46.5% of all American adults claiming to follow Jesus and to attend worship. And I want to suggest to us that perhaps if the church of North America walked in such a state of humility and reverence before God and our joy was full, perhaps that would serve as a mighty witness to a culture that also desperately needs to humble itself before the Lord. And at the center of the church, or not at the center, but closer to home is our church, and even closer to home is each one of us. It starts with us asking this question of ourselves. How am I responding ongoingly to the supernatural saving grace of God in Jesus Christ? Am I marked by a spirit of humility and repentance before the Lord? Do I exhibit this kind of hunger for the word and hunger for obedience response that's pictured in Israel today? And so let's end by turning to the Lord in prayer and asking him to develop this deeper spirit of repentance and humility within each one of us.
Father God, we praise you for your love. We praise you for your sovereign, supernatural grace that has reached down and caught us up and that worked before we ever knew anything about how to respond to your grace. You were at work through Jesus Christ. You love us. You chose us. You called us. You woke us up to you. You drew us to you. You set a feast before us in the kingdom of heaven. It's all your sovereign initiative, Father. And we want to acknowledge before you afresh that we are yours. We belong to you through Jesus. And that we all must say that we have not responded with wholehearted hunger and thirst for your ways, with love for correction, and with desire to be pure and holy as you are holy. And so we all together ask you, Lord, give us an increased hunger and thirst to know you, to seek you, to walk in your ways. Lord, increase our hunger and thirst for your word. Lord, pour out a spirit, not only of humility and repentance, but of revival on us that we could burn a flame with love for you, with the joy of the Lord, because we're agreeing with you in everything, living in the light in everything. Purify and refine us, O Lord, and cause our joy to be greater than that which we've ever known for your glory and for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen.